Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. It says, Now when Jesus came up or into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, as we get into our study, we see here in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and his disciples now head to Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Galilee. This is not the city of Caesarea that many of us know, which was built by Herod on the Mediterranean coast. This is actually north of Galilee, not on the Mediterranean coast. This is Caesarea Philippi. He's kind of isolating himself a little bit to ask his disciples a question. He asked his disciples to tell him what people are saying about him, who they think he is. Now, Jesus already knows that he already knows the answer to this question. He's asking, who do people say that I am? He already knows. And he's about to ask, who do you say that I am? And he knows who understands and who doesn't. But he has a purpose. And God, a lot of times, will lead us into situations and sometimes put us in a situation and then kind of almost back away, it seems like, in our lives. And he's asking us a question. How do you feel about this? Or what do you, what do you think I'm doing right now? And a lot of times, he already knows how we feel and what we think, but he's trying to pull stuff out of us during those times. He's doing that with his disciples. So they responded that some people say, like Herod did, that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. Go to Matthew chapter 14. You're in chapter 16. Jump back to chapter 14. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. John the Baptist, as you know, had been put to death by Herod, and now when Jesus was doing these miracles, uh, Herod was afraid that it was John the Baptist back from the dead. Now, hopefully you understand that that'd be kind of silly. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be John the Baptist because they were both seen together at Jesus' baptism, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. So it couldn't be Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead. But, of course, Herod didn't understand all of that. And now, some people were thinking that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy about Elijah returning. Go to Malachi. You're in Matthew, just one book to the left, if you will. The last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, there was a prophecy at the end of the Old Testament that we're going to get into in more detail when we get into chapter 17. But in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the prophecy in the Old Testament, as it came to a close, said that before the great and awesome day of the Lord came, that Elijah was going to come. So some people were thinking that Jesus, because of the miraculous powers that he was doing and the powerful way that he was preaching and the way that he was not afraid of the Pharisees and not afraid of the Romans. They thought he was Elijah, the promised fulfillment. Now, others were still saying that he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets returned to life. But then Jesus changes the question. And he changes it from being general to more personal. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now, before we even get to Peter's response, I want to do a couple of things. First off is this. You can spend all your life talking with all these people about who they think Jesus is. But the real question for each of us before we die is, who do we think Jesus is? As I travel around the country and meet different people, and a lot of times I'll play golf with pastors of churches or leaders in churches, and a lot of times we'll get talking, or I'm on a golf course somewhere, and they find out that I'm a preacher, and they'll find out, they'll always ask me, well, are you a Baptist preacher, are you a Methodist preacher, so on. And I always tell them, look, when we stand before God, He's not going to ask us what church we went to. What He's going to ask us is what we did with His Son. The issue is not whether you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or whatever. The issue is 
Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the real issue. We try to get caught up in all this other stuff. But I also want to show you from Scripture for a little bit here tonight that Jesus has been alluding to his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, but he had never to this point explicitly taught his disciples about the fullness of his identity. You're going to see as we get into this, he's never directly told the disciples, I am the Christ. They've kind of leaned in that direction. They're thinking he may be. I'll show you that in a little bit. He's pointing to the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, but he's never said, I am the Christ. Now, the only time that we have recorded prior to this that he tells anyone that he's the promised Messiah directly is the woman at the well. And interestingly enough, when he tells the woman at the well, his disciples aren't there. They're actually in the town buying some food. Go to John chapter four. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In John chapter four, verses 19 through 30, we see an account of Jesus with the woman at the well. In John chapter four and verse 19, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So here Jesus, the only time we have specifically, prior to what's going on here in Matthew 16, where Jesus specifically tells someone that he is the Messiah, the promised Christ, in those words is the woman at the well and his disciples weren't there. So prior to it, and where we are in Matthew 16, Jesus has been alluding to the prophecies about the fact that he's the fulfillment of the prophecies, but he's never directly told them that he was the Christ. Now, we, if you were to look at John chapter 9, we don't have the time to turn there, but if you looked at John chapter 9 as Jesus deals with the man that he heals of blindness, he uses the term son of man. Uh, and uh, he asks him, you know, uh, do you believe in the son of man? You know, and, and the guy says, well, tell me who he is. Show me who he is and I'll believe. And Jesus says to him, I'm he. You know, um, you're looking at him. But the disciples have been following him because they think and they believe him to possibly be the Christ, the promised Messiah. But Jesus never told them directly that he is up to this point. Go to John chapter 1. Look at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. You'll see that they're following him because they think he may be the Christ. John 1, 35 through 51. And says, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, two disciples, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said to him, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, if you know from this passage, keep reading. They start wrestling with this. And the next day, uh, Jesus decided to go to the Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida. And the city, the city of Andrew and Peter and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. 
Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So Jesus many times will refer to himself as the son of man. And only once did we hear him actually tell someone, I'm the Christ. That's the woman at the well. But the disciples weren't there. So now in Caesarea Philippi, as it's getting closer to the time for Jesus to go to the cross, he takes his disciples away. And he says, who do people say that I am? They give the list and all. And then he says, OK, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. This is why Jesus responds to Peter the way he does. When Jesus says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus answers him and says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Jonah, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father in heaven has opened your eyes. Folks, I want you to hear something and I want to show it to you from scripture tonight. Even if Jesus had said to him, I am the Christ. That wouldn't have opened his eyes because it's the spirit of God who opens eyes. Just Jesus saying it. We see the woman. He said to the woman in John four, I am he. She said the Messiah, the Christ is coming. Jesus says, I'm him. The woman goes into the town and says, what? Could this be the Christ? I want you to understand, and this is very important for those of us who are wanting to share our faith. I want you to listen tonight. For those of you that are wrestling with whether or not Jesus really is the Savior of the world, the only way you can be saved, the only way you can be right with God. For those of you that are wrestling with this issue, listen closely to me. It is not Jim Johnson's teaching. It's not how someone words it. It's not because they, they illustrated it in a perfect way. It is only by the Spirit of God using his word that he opens our eyes to who Jesus is. When someone truly believes and comes to know who Jesus really is and believe it, it is God who has opened their eyes, not man. Folks, listen. This is why we must stop focusing so much on our presentation or if we're good enough at sharing the good news. Jesus has been vague. Jesus has been uh, pointing them to the scriptures because it's God and his word that opens people's eyes and hearts as to who Jesus is. If you remember in John chapter 16, Jesus himself says it is the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he'll convict the world of their sin, their need of righteousness, the fact that there's a coming judgment. This is a work that the Spirit of God does in people's lives. Yet too many Christians today fall prey to that silly notion of, well, I'm not really good at telling people about Jesus. Jim Johnson or those preachers could do a better job than me. And we think that the power is in someone's ability to share it. And that's not it. The power is in the truth itself, the Word of God, and it's the Spirit of God that opens people's eyes. You got family members that need to be saved? Stop trying to convince them yourself. Stop thinking that if I say it a hundred times, maybe they'll finally get it. It's the Spirit of God that opens their eyes. Pray that God opens their eyes. Pray that God helps them to realize their need, their sin, their need of a Savior, and who Jesus is. And folks, if you're today, right now, and you're sensing in your spirit, you're sensing inside of you that, you know what, I think this is the truth. I think Jesus is the only way I can be right before God. I truly kind of start to feel like, you know what, if I died today, I wouldn't go to heaven because I haven't given my life to Jesus. If that is happening in you right now, God is doing a work. God is doing work and you need to respond. It's not, well, I think Jim was pretty powerful tonight. No, it's God. It's the spirit of God. And you need to surrender to when his spirit opens your eyes. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Look at verses 8 through 13 and then we'll jump to verse 17. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jump down to verse 17. So faith comes 
from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Folks, just go tell people who Jesus is. Show them the scriptures and leave it at that. If they're going to believe, it's because God opened their eyes, not because you were good at it. Too many of you have not shared because you don't think you're good at it. You think you might actually do some damage by telling people about Jesus because you're not really good at it. Satan is lying to you, folks. Satan keeps you to think that it has something to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. And if he uses us, he gets all the glory. Because if they see, flesh and blood did not open our eyes. Flesh and blood did not open their eyes. It's God himself. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to bomb you right now with a bunch of scriptures that illustrate this. And my prayer is that hopefully you'll come out of this. Those of us that know the Lord with a desire just to tell people because you believe it's God's going to help them see it and not whether or not you did a good job. In Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 said, As far as by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may Boast. If someone's saved, God gave it to them. They didn't earn it. It's nothing we did to make it happen. God is gracious to give us this salvation. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As Paul is dealing with a whole section on spiritual gifts, he makes a very interesting statement in verse 3. One verse, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. He says, he says therefore... I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Nobody can even say Jesus is Lord and believe it and mean it unless the spirit of God has done that work in their hearts. Jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You're in 1 Corinthians 12. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 5. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, and when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. Folks, uh, I, I've been through seminary. I've been through preaching classes and a lot of us have been taught how to make your slick presentation and you got to have this and you got to have that and you got to have your clothes. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with studying. There's nothing wrong with preparing and putting together a message. But I've learned over the years preaching now for many, many years that actually the times when I thought I did my worst, I've seen more responses. The times I thought that I was slick, there are crickets. It has a lot less to do with me and a lot more to do with the power of God than I first realized when I started preaching. And Paul says, I didn't come with lofty speech and, 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 and man's wisdom. I came and I preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. And I wanted you to believe because of the power of God, not because of man's slickness, if you will. Yet how many times do we think we've got to have it all together? Folks, study the word, know the word, get it in your heart. That, that way God can give you more passages as the Spirit of God shares through you and tells people about him. And he'll put more passages of the word in your heart that you can use. Prepare, pray. But when you walk into a preaching opportunity, a teaching opportunity, a chance to share with your neighbor, just pray that God open their eyes and you just share with what God tells, them to tells you to share. Go to chapter 2 again. Look at verses 10 through 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, it says, Paul, Paul says this. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, this is the person without the Spirit, does not understand or accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly or foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if we think that if we word it a 17th time or if we say it a different way, that all of a sudden they're going to get it, you totally missed it. Be praying that God opens their eyes. Pray that they, has he softened their heart 
Pray that they humble themselves and say, give me eyes to see, give me ears to hear. That's why the Bible says we need to humble ourselves and become like children and say, God, I don't understand. God, I need to know. Lord, I don't think I can figure this out on my own, but you will show me. You said you'll open my eyes. And I ask you today, Daddy, please show me, teach me, open my eyes. And we'll learn spiritual truth that way. People will get saved that way. When we stop thinking it has to do with us. Again, think about Jesus. He's never come out and directly told them that he was the Christ. He's been alluding to it, pointing to the scriptures, fulfilling the scriptures. And he says, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, man didn't open your eyes to that. My father did. Now go to Acts chapter 16. Let me show you again. I told you I was going to bomb you with scriptures that illustrate this. We need to let this truth sink into our hearts. Go to Acts 16. Look at verses 11 through 15. In Acts chapter 16, verse 11 says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman, which is a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, when we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Look closely at the next verse. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. By the way, two things from this passage. One that goes with what we're talking about now. Another thing that's going to be referenced later in our study. The first thing is this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I'm going to just say something real quick. I know of too many evangelists who send out their newsletters advertising how many people got saved at their last event and how many get saved at that last event like they had something to do it. Kind of like if you call me, I guarantee you lots of people will get saved. Folks, if people are saved, it's because of the power of God and the spirit of God, not because of man. Beware of those who think they have the ability to get people saved. It's done by God and not by man. The Lord opened her heart. But look at what she also says next. And she says, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if you see that I really am for real, Let's let the church start in my house. We'll deal with that a little bit later because you're going to see that actually God's given us in the church authority to make that call. Who's saved and who's not? We don't make the determination in the wrong way and we're not trying to figure out who is and who isn't. But as you're about to see in our study, as Jesus talks to Peter after he says what he says, he's given us some authority. And what's bound on earth, uh, sorry, bound in heaven will be bound on earth. What's loosed in heaven is going to be loosed on earth. This will make some more sense to us as we get to that section. Uh, Folks, I, I, I could go on. I got more scriptures here, but I think for the sake of time, I think Spirit of God is saying that's enough. Hopefully you hear what I'm saying. If they understand, you didn't do it. God did. If you're a believer today, it wasn't because that preacher was so good. It's because God opened your eyes. Now, Jesus now points out that Simon is now Peter. And upon the rock of Peter's profession, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that. On the rock of Peter's profession of faith, he will build his church. You remember back in John chapter 1, verses 40 through 42? You remember that? How Jesus said, you're Simon, but one day you'll be Peter. Now in Matthew 16, he says, okay, you're a new creation now. You're a new person. Because of your faith and because God giving you salvation and giving you righteousness and opening your eyes, you are now Peter, and upon this rock, the rock of your profession of your faith, I'll show you what I mean by that in just a second, I'm going to build my church. Now, the word for Peter, his name Peter, is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, uh, which means small stone. Jesus uses a play on words, though, when he says, upon this rock, Petra, P-E-T-R-A, okay, Peter's name is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, and then he says, upon this rock, Petra, P-E-T-R-A, which means foundation boulder, he will build his church. So he says, you are a little stone now. You're a rock man, you're a little stone. Upon this foundation stone, I am going to build my church. Now, folks, many have tried to make the foundation of Jesus' church Peter. That doesn't match with Scripture. The scripture and the New Testament makes it very, very clear that Jesus is the foundation. 
And he is the head of the church. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 24 and 25. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, foundation stone. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jump over to Acts chapter 4. Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 4. And listen to what Peter says in verses 8 through 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Peter's preaching and he says this. It says, Then Peter, filled with or under the control of the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you and has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter himself says Jesus is the foundation stone. He's the cornerstone. He's built, the church is built upon Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid. First Corinthians chapter three, verse 11. Paul says that no other foundation can be laid other than that which is already laid, which is Christ. Peter is not the foundation of the church. The church was not built on the apostle Peter. He's one of the small stones. And you're going to see you and I are some of those small stones in just a second. But the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the Petra is Jesus and your faith in him. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul brings this out as well in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 20 through 23. In Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 20. It says that he worked in Christ. We're in the middle of Paul's sentence, but you'd be hard pressed to find anywhere that you could find Paul finish a sentence. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over his church over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here we see that Jesus is the foundation stone and he's the head of the body of Christ, which is the church. Go to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verse 23. Ephesians 5 verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So was Jesus saying to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you? No. He's a small stone. But Jesus is the cornerstone. And Peter, along with the other apostles, they played an important role in the building of the church. But Peter himself, and I'm going to show you, to, show you that from the scriptures. Peter himself tells us that we too are little stones, living stones. And we too are added to the church that Jesus is building. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to show you how Paul says it and then, and then Peter says it. In Ephesians 2, look at verses 19 through 22. In Ephesians 2, Paul shows us this. In verses 19 through 22, he says this. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, by God, for God, by the Spirit. So here Paul says, look, the church is something that God's built, be, being built right now. He's building is made up of Jew and Gentile. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets, they're a part of that and how he's using them to build this church. They're living stones. Well, that's exactly how Peter described it in 1 Peter chapter 2. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Listen to Peter's own words. 
He doesn't say that he's the foundation of the church or the church is being built on him. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Quoting from the Old Testament, Peter is here. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he himself says, as we come to Christ, we're like living stones built into this house that he's building, the church, which is his body. Who's the cornerstone? Is it Peter? No. He's one of the apostles and the prophets, and, and, and he's a major part of what was being built. But we, too, are being built in as well as living stones, little stones. He says, your name now was Simon. It is now Petros, Peter, rock man. Just like I said, you were going to be a new creation. And upon your faith in the cornerstone, the Petra, I'm going to build my church. Now, this is an interesting little tidbit that some of you may or may not know. Here in Matthew 16, go back to Matthew 16. Here in Matthew 16 and in Matthew chapter 18 are the only two places in all four Gospels that the church is ever mentioned. The church is a big part of the New Testament and God's building his church as we've been seeing. But in all four Gospels, as they've been talking about Jesus' first coming and his birth and his life and his death, his resurrection... It really wasn't about the church until after he rose from the dead, after he ascended, and then the church begins in the book of Acts. At the same time, Matthew is the only time in chapter 16 and chapter 18, and you're going to see how those two together are going to help us in our passage tonight. Those are the only two times in all of the four Gospels that the church is ever mentioned by name. Here we see in Matthew chapter 16, again, verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word church is ecclesia, called out ones. Jump over to Matthew 18 and look at verses 15 through 20. In Matthew chapter 18, look at verses 15 through 20. Jesus is dealing with how to deal with church discipline, if you will, and dealing with issues in the church. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him privately alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Sound familiar? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let me chase a rabbit real quick. This is probably one of the most quoted passages in Scripture out of context. I've been in so many churches where people will say, well, Jesus said wherever two or three are gathered, he's there. So there's more than two or three of us. So Jesus is here. Let me say something to you. That's not what the context is talking about. And secondly, if you were as a believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Jesus living inside of you in a place all by yourself. Is Jesus not there because you need two or three? It's silly to say, well, Jesus is here because there's more than two of us. That's not what the passage is talking about. It's talking about the authority that we've been given because we're in his church. And where two or three of you are gathered together in my name 
And it's in the context here of dealing with someone who sinned. That individual goes to him and says, hey, we got a problem here and we need you to kind of be willing to repent for what you've done. The guy doesn't listen. You bring some other individuals that know him well and love him and have proven that. And, and, and you try to get that person to be reconciled, to repent. If they won't listen, then you bring them before the church. And Jesus says, we're two or three of you are gathered in my name. You have my authority. You have my authority to deal with it. Paul does the same type of thing. We'll break this down in a lot more detail when we get to Matthew 18. But Paul deals with the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. He's dealing with a man in the church who's sinning. And he says, hey, whatever you guys agree, I'm with you in spirit. You have my permission, my authority, my apostolic authority because I'm with you, even though I'm not there. So this passage sheds light on verse 19 of Matthew 16. Go back to Matthew 16 again. Look at verse 19. And he says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the only authority we have is the authority that he has. And when we walk with him and speak what he says, we can make these statements with authority. Now, remember back in Acts chapter 16, when the Lord opened the eyes of Lydia and the heart of Lydia to believe? What did she say? She said, if you consider me to be a believer, please let the church start in my house. In other words, if you guys with the authority that you've been given would agree that I really have responded in faith, you get to make that call. Folks, when we say according to God's word that one can only be saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ... First off, we only have the authority to say that because of the word of God. But what we proclaim, if you want to be loosed of your sin and you want to be, become a part of Christ, you need to be saved by there's only one way. There's no under name under heaven by which men must be saved. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And we have the authority to say that because Jesus has given it to us in the church. He's using his church right now, his body, his hands and his feet. As he was sent into the world, we've been sent into the world. As he went into the world and he preached, everybody was saying, man, what authority he has. And, and, and he's teaching with power. We have that authority. We have that power, not in ourselves. I'm going to show you that in a section. We're not within ourselves, but because of the spirit of God within us. And he says to Peter, you're now Peter. You're this rock man. And upon this profession of your faith in me, your faith in the cornerstone, I'm going to build my church. And now I'm going to use you and the other apostles and the church that's going to be built to accomplish my purpose. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And the authority that I have, I'm giving to you. Go to John chapter 20. Let me show you how it's illustrated here. In John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John chapter 19. Sorry, John chapter 20. Thank you. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John 20, starting in verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, this is the day that he rose from the dead, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And as the father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he had said these things, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now again, that doesn't mean a preacher in and of himself has the ability to forgive sins. But if we can say to you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be forgiven of your sins. We have that authority to say it because Jesus has given it to us. And because of the word, because of the spirit of God within us, we can share with you the truth. Go to Matthew chapter 28, a very familiar passage to a lot of folks. Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here Jesus said, All authority has been given to me. I'm giving it now to you. I want you to go. And through my authority, because I'm within you, remember Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preached and said, under the control of the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus is the one who healed this man. He's the Christ. He's the one you rejected. He's the cornerstone that you builders rejected. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. And there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. The world today says, you don't have any right to say that. Yes, we do. We have the right to say that because Jesus has given us that authority because it is his word and what he said. And whatever he said, we can say and whatever has been bound on earth can be bound in heaven. Let me read this to you again in my notes here. When we say, according to God's word, that one can only be saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, and the church recognizes an individual has believed, the church baptizes that individual or will not do so because they don't believe there has been repentance. But our authority is only from Christ and his word. That's why the woman, Lydia, said, if you see that I have responded, you have the authority to say that I'm in or I'm out. We've been given that call. Now, we are, according to Matthew 13, we've already spent our time there to go trying to figure out who's saved and who's not. But there are times when we have that call, when people say, I believe, I want to be baptized. And as a pastor, and as leaders in churches, we need to prayerfully say, Lord, does this person really understand? And God will show us. There's evidences of the Spirit. We don't have time to get into those now. But we have the authority to say, I don't think you're ready yet. Or, hey, I believe you are, and we recognize it, and we're going to baptize you. Now, remember, this authority isn't from us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to show you something very interesting. Paul even realized, man, this is heavy stuff. That's, that's a lot of authority. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 17, what Paul says. And then he asks this question, and then he answers it in chapter 3. All right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, Paul says this. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one person, we're a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Listen to what he says next. Who is sufficient for these things? For we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So here Paul talks about what we've just been talking about. In the church, we've been given this authority to say there's only one way to be saved. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We don't have any authority to say that unless it's given to us by God. And because it's been given to us by God and it's what God's word says, we have the authority to say, if you believe in any other way of getting right before God except faith alone in Jesus Christ, you're not saved. But if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God and the spirit of God has opened your eyes to this truth, we'd baptize you in a heartbeat and say, welcome, brother and sister, you're part of the body of Christ. He's given us that authority. But then Paul says, as we go commissioned by God, speaking through Christ, Christ speaking through us in this world, to some, they reject it and we smell like death. To others, we smell like life because they respond. And he goes, it's pretty heavy stuff. Who's sufficient for such a thing? Jump over to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. Look at verses 4 through 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Remember at the beginning, we spent all that time dealing with, it's not your power that opens people's eyes, it's God's. When you go out into this world, knowing what his word says, believing what he says, you have the authority to say there's only one way to be saved. And if they believe it, God opened their eyes. If they reject it, it has nothing to do with you. They're rejecting Christ. Go share the good news in the authority that we've been given. Now, it would seem that as soon as Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus would say, okay, now go tell everybody then. Go back to Matthew 16, our last verse for our passage for tonight. Matthew 16, verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that interesting? He pulls them aside. He says, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, your eyes have been opened by my father. And then he strictly charged them all 
not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, Jesus hasn't been publicizing his miracles and notoriety much at all during his ministry. And now when his disciples finally have their eyes open to who he is, he tells them not to tell anyone. Why? Well, I'm going to give you some answers and I'm going to give you some scriptures to look up. We don't have time tonight to show you the scriptures. I'm running a little bit short of time and I want to finish our study for tonight. So write these down. Allison's going to type them down for you as well. Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. Mark chapter 1 verses 40 through 45. Mark 1 40 through 45. And Matthew 12 9 through 21. Matthew 12, 9 through 21. All right. Those are some scriptures that are going to illustrate what I'm going to show you here. Here are some reasons why Jesus told them at this time not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. One, publicity made ministry hard because of the crowds. When he started to do miracles, the crowds would get so thick, he sometimes had to get in a boat just to get away from him to be able to preach. Zacchaeus has to climb a tree to even be able to see Jesus. Another reason is the Jews were trying to kill him, and it wasn't time for him to die. Putting these together now, if he allowed the announcement of his Messiahship, the crowds would try to make him king, which you're going to see in one of your passages, and the Jewish authorities would try harder to kill him. But becoming king wasn't in this visit's time plan. You remember he first came to seek and save the lost and to die for the sins of the world. He's coming again to set up his kingdom. So becoming king at this time wasn't the plan, and the time for him to die had not yet come. It was close, as you're going to see as we move forward in Matthew. Jesus is preparing his disciples. We'll deal with that next week. He's getting them ready for the fact that he's heading to the cross. But it wasn't time yet. So because of God's timing and God's plan, even though their eyes were opened, he says, don't tell anybody just yet. We already saw that after he rose from the dead, he said, go into all the world, make disciples, tell them everything that I've shown you. But at this point, he says, don't tell anybody just yet. Here's why. Because Jesus was in full control of what was going to happen when, even his own death. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, look at verses 17 and 18. Folks, don't think for a second that things are out of control and that Jesus isn't in full control. We're going to close with that tonight. I want you to kind of stick with me here as we bring this to a close. God wants to talk to us about the pandemic. In John chapter 10, look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus himself says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Look what Jesus said. No one kills me before it's time, and when I die, they're not killing me. I'm laying my life down. I'm in control of when I die. And because of that, and because some people were trying to make him king when it wasn't time for him to king, that's his second, be king, his second coming. And because some were trying to kill him, and it wasn't actually the hour and the time that he was to die. We'll deal with that more next week. He says, don't tell anybody yet that I'm the Christ. Go to John chapter 12. Look at verses 20 through 28. In John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, there came a point when it was time. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is my soul troubled, he said. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Of course, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Folks, it's very, very clear that Jesus was in control of when he was to die. And that's partly why he says, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ yet. Another reason we don't have time to get into tonight is the, the disciples' understanding of who the Christ is. Even though they had their eyes open to that he was the Messiah, they still thought he was going to be the king and set up his kingdom right away. 
Now, listen closely. Now that his purposes of redemption through his death on the cross have been accomplished, this side of the cross, at just the right time, the Bible says, he was born at just the right time, he died. Now that they've been accomplished at just the right time, we are instructed to go and proclaim who he is to the world. Jesus is not telling us tonight, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. He's saying now, go tell everyone. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to close tonight with Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Again, this Peter, this same Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, and then verse 36. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter is preaching under the control of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. In other words, this is all according to God's definite plan. This is all right on schedule. You fulfilled scripture without realizing it. But God was in control of it the whole time. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this Jesus, both Lord and what? Boy, I wish I could hear you tonight. If we were in a room full of people like we normally are, we'd all yell what? The Christ. He's made him both Lord and Christ. Folks, did you catch that? Peter, who was told, don't tell anybody, has now been commissioned to go tell everybody he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He's the only way people can be saved. We've been given that authority. We've been given that permission. Go tell everyone. In Acts chapter 4, look at verses 8 through 12. Acts 4, 8 through 12 says this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and people of Israel, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, don't listen to people that tell you there's lots of ways to God. The Bible is very clear. There's only one. Well, what authority do you have to say that? Uh, the authority of the word of God and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say this. If Jesus was in full control of everything, the timing of his birth, the timing of his death, the timing of his resurrection. If you do a study of the prophecies and a study of the feasts, you'll see how they all were fulfilled. Not all of them, the first four and then the three still coming uh, were fulfilled in his first coming. To the day, to the hour, to the minute. The prophecy of him coming into Jerusalem on the donkey was fulfillment of a prophecy in Daniel on the day that they welcomed Messiah and then they cut him off. Folks, let me just say this to you. God is in control of the times of our days as well. Seems like things are getting out of control and the timing of when's the economy going to be back up you know what god's in control of all that why don't we spend time saying father in your time in your way provide for us in the meantime get us ready for those days in which you send us out right now we're kind of kind of co cooped up and we only can do bible studies via the facebook or whatever but when it's time we're ready to go to be released by you to go tell some more and if there are people you want me to share with today show me when and how in the authority that you've given me I love y'all. Look forward to studying some more with you next week. We'll see you next Tuesday night.